turn in your Bibles to Mark 14, Mark chapter 14. I think we're in our 56th Sunday in Mark's gospel here as we're just slowly kind of making our way through, through Mark's gospel. Uh, Pastor Brian led us in the uh, first 11 verses of Mark chapter 14 last week, and now we're turning our attention to Mark 14, verses 12 through 25. We're going to take a little break from uh, Mark's gospel uh, during the season of Advent as we look at, uh, take a, a, a pause to look at Matthew's genealogy, the gospel of Matthew's genealogy uh, for the season of Advent, and then we'll get back into Mark and finish up Mark uh, in January of 2023. Uh, but for now, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 14, verses 12 to 25. Uh, once you get there, you can stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word. Mark chapter 14, verses 12 to 25. Let's listen with reverence and joy as we find Jesus again at a meal. And on the first day of, the, on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the, fast, the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? And he said to them, it is one of the twelve who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we do ask for your help as we turn our attention to Mark 14, 12 through 25. Pray that you would give us eyes that see, ears that hear, hearts that, that understand and trust. And pray that, that you would illumine to us the words of the Lord Jesus, the words written by Mark, inspired by the Holy Spirit, now your words, so that we might be sanctified and changed and transformed by them into more and more the likeness of Christ, 
we might live for your glory more faithfully in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, in Matthew eleven nineteen, Jesus described the nature of his coming in the incarnation, something of the nature of the essence of his coming. He said there, the Son of Man came. Now, I wonder how you might finish that sentence. If you've been following along with us in Mark's gospel, you might think of Mark 8. You might finish it by saying the Son of Man came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, and that would be completely true. You might finish it to, to seek and to save the lost, and that would be right too, since Jesus says precisely that in Luke 19.10. You could add to fulfill the law, which would be obviously right. As Jesus says that in the Sermon on the Mount. That's how Jesus finishes that sentence in several places throughout the Gospels. But in Matthew 11.19, he finishes that sentence by saying, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. He came eating and drinking. Meals are important to Jesus. Tim Chester, in his wonderful book, A Meal with Jesus, (coughs) points out the simple truth that Jesus spent his time eating and drinking a lot of his time. His mission strategy was a long meal stretched into the evening. He did evangelism and discipleship around a table with some grilled fish, a loaf of bread, and a pitcher of wine. Now we're, we're in part of Mark's gospel wherein we, we find Jesus at table. Now last week, Pastor Brian led us in exploring a, a passage wherein Jesus was at a meal at Simon the leper's house. And this week we find Jesus at table again. And just as last week contained a, a, a tradition that was to be <coughs> um, passed on to all the world wherever the gospel is preached, so this week we, we find a tradition meant to be handed down to us as well. And the tradition that we receive this week is not just a story memorializing the the actions of of an individual at the meal, but this week we're given a a practice to continue in as well, as we ourselves are given a meal to observe and to celebrate in this passage until the end of the age. Our passage here is often called the Last Supper, because this was the, the final meal of Jesus before his trial and his his execution, and, and uh, we, we, we find here in our passage um, that it's actually his last meal until he, we see him again at the end of the age. And this meal and event <clears throat> recorded for us here is, uh, is not just any meal. Uh, this is uh, the, the Passover feast, the Passover meal, a meal that memorialized that, that great Exodus event uh, wherein God's people were redeemed from slavery, slavery in Egypt and rescued as his treasured possession. And it's within that meal in which uh, Jesus actually introduces a new meal for us, a new meal which will commemorate a far greater exodus, a far greater redemption. Of course, we're speaking about the Lord's Supper, which is sometimes called the Eucharist or communion or the breaking of bread. That meal was instituted by Jesus on this night, this night of the Last Supper. And this is what's recorded for us here in our passage. <coughs> Excuse me. What we find here is that Jesus has died to redeem us and given us a meal to remember it until he comes again. And Jesus has died to redeem us and he's given us a meal to remember it until he comes again. We're going to explore this in this passage as we walk through six realities that this meal, this Last Supper, shows us. First, we find in the Last Supper 
that Jesus has brought a new exodus. Jesus has brought a new exodus. Uh, the events recorded for us here took place on, on Thursday of Holy Week, the day just before Jesus' Good Friday death. And it was also, as we see in verse 12, the first day of unleavened bread when they sacrificed the Passover lamb. And so in light of it being this day, the disciples asked Jesus, say, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Jesus gives a very specific set of instructions. The Passover was supposed to be celebrated within the walls of Jerusalem. And so Jesus sent two disciples into the city. And when there, Jesus tells them uh, that they're going to find a man carrying a jar of water. Uh, that would have been peculiar because carrying water in that time and place was, would have been viewed as a, more of a woman's work than a man's work. Um, and so it would have been peculiar for them to, to find a man in Jerusalem there carrying a jar of water. And so when you find this guy, Jesus says it's going to be peculiar, you'll notice him. Uh, follow him to a house and, and say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And Jesus says he's going to show you this large upper room furnished and ready, and it's there that I want you to prepare the Passover for us. And there's some debate regarding uh, whether these specific instructions were given as a result of, of merely human planning on the part of Jesus, or if Jesus, through divine foreknowledge and ordination, gave these instructions. I'm not sure it really matters. Either way, what it shows is that Jesus had very intentionally planned the events of this night. He planned to eat the Passover with his, in this way with his disciples on the night in which he was betrayed. He planned to institute the Lord's Supper to be passed on in perpetuity from this night on, just as God had planned for Jesus to be betrayed and crucified on this week. And when you consider of all the feasts, of all the holy days in which Jesus might have instituted this meal, he did it in the context of the Passover meal. The Lord's Supper here, it's, it's not annexed to the Passover meal in this story. It's part of the meal. And it's intentionally instituted within the context of this Passover meal, it's, which is intentionally communicating this reality that we've already seen in, in Mark so far together. It's that Jesus has brought a new exodus. The exodus was that in which God redeemed his people from slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt. It was that in which he, he saved his people through the judgment of Egypt. It was that in which he passed over the Israelites in judgment through a lamb slain in their place. And it was this meal that commemorated those events. And with Jesus instituting this new covenant meal in the middle of this feast commemorating those events, he's saying that those events were pointing forward to this greater exodus to come, an exodus, a redemption, not merely from slavery to Egypt, but from slavery to sin and Satan and death. As Tim Keller was, was fond of pointing out, if you were in Egypt during the time uh, just after the Passover, and you stopped one of the Israelites and you asked them, hey, who are you and what's, what is happening here? What is going on in this place? This is insane. They would have responded by saying, well, well, we were slaves in Egypt. Slaves, uh, we were slaves in Egypt. We were under a, a sentence of death, but we've, been, we've taken shelter under the blood of the Lamb and escaped that bondage. God has, has delivered us from slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt. We were in bondage, but now we're free, and now God lives in our midst as we're following him to the promised land. 
That's precisely what Christians say today, isn't it? We are those who are, who are under slavery. As Jesus says in John 8, 34, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. We've been slaves to sin. And because of that, we deserve the penalty of death and judgment from the hand of God. But instead of being given the wages we deserve, we've been given the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We've been given Jesus, the Lamb who was slain in our place and for our sins so that we might go free and so that God's judgment might pass over us. Now God is in our midst as we follow him to the promised land. We've been given a new exodus, of which the old exodus was just a shadow, just a picture. Sin more specifically brings us to the next reality that the Last Supper shows us, which is that Jesus has, has died as our substitute. Jesus has died as our substitute. As verse 12 points out, this was the day in which they sacrificed the Passover lamb. The lamb uh, every year at that feast was, was, was sacrificed and slain to commemorate the fact that uh, on the eve before the Exodus, God's covenant people were to slay and prepare a Passover lamb at twilight. And they were to do two things with this lamb. First, they were to eat it, of course, and they were given very specific instructions regarding how to prepare it and eat it and cook it. And they were to apply its blood to the doorpost of the house in which they were going to eat it. And that blood, uh, Exodus 12, 13 tells us, would serve as a sign. There in Exodus 12, 13, the Lord says, When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. You see, God was, was, was going to act in judgment upon the people of Egypt by striking down the firstborn male child in each household. But instead of acting in judgment against his own covenant people, he passed over their household, sparing them and their children from judgment. Because that lamb suffered God's judgment in their place. So, and so every time God's people celebrated the Passover, they remembered that this lamb had been slain in their place so that God's judgment would pass over them in their household. The lamb was the centerpiece of this meal. It was the meal's focal point. Now, part of what's so striking about the, the, the Lord's Supper then, as we find it instituted here in our passage, is that there's no lamb in this meal. Presumably, Jesus and his disciples had eaten a lamb that night. But in the institution of the Lord's Supper, there's no lamb prepared and eaten. Why is that? Because Christ is himself our Passover lamb. Paul says this about Christ in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. He says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. You see, the lamb was a type of Christ, a, a type of the one who was to come. The lamb foreshadowed Christ. The lamb was a shadow, but Christ is the substance. What the Passover anticipated has now been fully realized in Christ Jesus and in his cross on Calvary. On the cross, Jesus' blood was shed, and it was shed so that the penalty we deserve for our sins might fall on him instead of us, just as that lamb had died as a substitute for the firstborn of every child, or every firstborn child in the, the Israelite households there in Egypt. So now Christ, our spotless lamb, has died as a substitute for all who place their faith and trust in him. On the cross, Jesus took the judgment we deserve in our place, so that now God's wrath and judgment passes over us. This is why Jesus can say in the words of the institution, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. His blood has been poured out for, for on behalf of 
many, the many who would place their faith and trust in him. The many who, who now no longer must bear the penalty for their sins. Their guilt has been taken away. Their sin utterly atoned for because Christ poured out his crimson for them in their place. And you can see why this is called a new exodus. You see how freeing this is. How freeing it is to know that our guilt has been taken away and our sin atoned for. See, if Christ has, has, has died as our substitute in our place for our sins, well, then we're, we're freed from these twin traps of self-absorption on the one hand and self-deprecation on the other. We're, we're freed from self-absorption. Because when we look at what it costs Christ to purchase us and to pay for our sins, we realize just how sinful how wretched, how despicable we are, we realize that it, if it would cost such a sacrifice, such a substitute, then, then if such a brutal offering was needed to pay for our sin, then we have no reason to think of ourselves too highly. We have no cause for pride. We have no cause for self-absorption. At the same time, though, Christ, as our substitutionary sacrifice, frees us from self-deprecation because while such a sacrifice reveals just how sinful we are, it also shows us how deeply loved and valued and treasured we are by the one who provided such a sacrifice in the first place. So we have no reason to despair when we're so loved by the Lord and Master of the universe. We're, we're freed from despair because Jesus has died as our substitute, all according to God's plan. Which brings us to the next reality revealed here, that Jesus has died as God had planned it. Jesus died as God planned it. The, the, the meal for the, the plants for the Passover meal here were not the only thing, uh, it was not the only thing meticulously planned. Christ's death was foreordained by the sovereign of the universe. We started, uh, we, we, we see starting in verse 17 <coughs> that Jesus and the twelve now arrive in the city to, to begin the feast. And it's here that, that Jesus foretells the betrayal of one of the twelve. And this is not polite dinner conversation, uh, but in the middle of the meal, Jesus says, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And the disciples, uh, being properly taught, each of them is capable of grievous sin, and in and of themselves, they, they began to be sorrowful, it says. And to, to say to him one after another, is it I? Is it I, Lord? And Jesus tells them that it is one of the twelve. Evidently, there were others there. And then in verse 21, he says, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And one of the interesting discussions you, you, you find throughout history surrounds this question of Who's responsible for the death of Jesus of Nazareth? Who's responsible for Jesus being crucified? You'll find a number of answers to this question. Some would say it was the Romans. Others say it was the chief priests and Sadducees and Pharisees in Jerusalem. Others say Pontius Pilate or Herod. Our passage obviously shows that Judas Iscariot um, carries a weight of responsibility. <coughs> Excuse me. And of all of those those individuals and parties, uh, they, they all play their own instrumental roles in delivering up the Christ. But our passage shows us precisely what the Apostle Peter says in Acts 2.23. 
that this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Jesus was crucified by God. This was God's doing. This was God's plan. This was an act accomplished by God. And we know this because Jesus says he goes as it is written of him. That Jesus would bring a true and better exodus was not a novel concept in Mark 14. Now, that Jesus would come and die as our substitute and our Passover lamb was not a new invention. It, it, it was already written of him. This was all according to God's plan. It was already written, for example, in Isaiah 53, that surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was already written of him. It was already planned. It should be crystal clear, of course, that the carrying out of this plan took place in such a way that, that God was never the author or approver of sin. It is true that Judas Iscariot betrayed him and grievously sinned. He sinned in such a horrific, such an appalling way. So detestable was this sin that Jesus says it would have been better for him if he had never been born. And just as when any human being sins, Judas only did so because he was allowed to do so by the sovereign God. But we should also remember that he was not authorized to do so by the sovereign God. It was done with God's permission, but not with his approval. He allowed the sin, but he was not sin's author. And Matthew Henry speaks very eloquently to this reality when he writes this. He says, God's decree to permit the sins of men and bring glory to himself out of them do neither necessitate their sins nor determine them nor will they be any excuse of the sin or mitigation of the punishment. Christ was delivered up indeed by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, but notwithstanding that, it is with wicked hands that he is crucified and slain. It's just, it's just as Joseph said of his brothers in the betrayal of, of him in Genesis 50, 20, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good that many people might be saved, and so it is with the cross of Christ. And the evil of all evil, sinful humanity betrayed and crucified the Lord Jesus, but this was God's plan for the salvation of many. And it was the accomplishment of this, this salvation that Jesus memorializes in the meal that he gives to us. Moving on now to the, the words of the institution in verses 22 to 25, we see the reality that Jesus has given us a memorial meal. He's given us a memorial meal, the Passover meal memorialize the events of the Exodus and, and Israel's redemption from Egypt. And now the Lord's Supper, given within that context, likewise memorializes our new Exodus. It memorializes the substitutionary death of Christ. It memorializes God's plan for our salvation in the cross of Christ. We see in verse 22 that as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. 
And Luke's record of this same event helpfully includes the word that this meal is to be done in remembrance of Christ. Uh, Paul's instruction regarding the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11 says that this meal is a proclamation of Christ's death. Even while those words are not included here in Mark 14, it's, it's abundantly clear that these actions, these elements, this meal is meant to rehearse something. Namely, the, the reality, the story of Christ's death. The bread is taken as a sacred emblem of Christ's body. It's blessed and broken just as Christ's body was broken for our salvation. And likewise, the cup filled with wine is the sacred emblem of, of the blood of Christ as His blood was poured out for our salvation and forgiveness. St. Augustine was, was fond of saying that the, the sacraments were visible words, as it were. Visible words. The word of the gospel proclaimed in Holy Scripture and given to our ears is made visible, tangible, smellable, tasteable in this meal. And we should be glad for that. We, we human beings, we're not brains on a stick. You know, we, we don't just need to download new information week in and week out whenever we gather. We need this gospel made available to our senses. And Christ has given us a, a, a meal. He's made the gospel available to, to our other senses through water and bread and wine in what we call the sacraments, bap, baptism and the Lord's Supper. I believe it was Ligon Duncan who was once asked in a, a new members class in, in, uh, in their church if their church had any sort of drama ministry in which the new member could participate. And he said, yes, we do. It's, it's called baptism and the Lord's Supper. These are these, these holy dramas ordained of Christ himself through which we rehearse the gospel and retell the most vital truths of our faith over and over and over again that Christ has died in our place our forgiveness and full acquittal. So today, Christian, we're, we're going to come to the Lord's Supper uh, in several moments. And, 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 and Christian, when we come to the Lord's Supper, I encourage you to look back to what Christ has done for you. Look back to his substitutionary death and be assured in this moment that your sin, your guilt is no longer what defines you. Your guilt no longer hangs over your head. God's wrath and judgment no longer awaits you at the end of the age. Be assured that you're forgiven, friend, that God's smile rests on you, that your conscience can rest at ease because Christ, who is fully sufficient for you, has died on your behalf. Look back with remembrance during this memorial meal. But then it's, it's more than just a mere memorial, friends. Sometimes we call this meal communion, don't we? Because there's, there's, there's not just a past reality that we're recalling, it's a very present reality that we get to enjoy as we celebrate this meal. You see next how, how Christ has given us a communion meal. And this is where we, we, we address this subject of the nature of Christ's presence in the Lord's Supper. It's a subject of which plenty of ink has been spilled throughout church history. Because there, there are some Christians throughout church history that have taken Christ's words here very literally. So Roman Catholic teaching since the, the Middle Ages and to this day uh, teaches that the bread and the wine in the Lord's Supper actually turns into Christ's body and blood. When the priest says the words of the institution during the Mass, that bread is no longer bread and that, that wine in that cup is no longer wine. It still appears to be bread and wine, but it actually instead becomes the body and blood of Christ. 
Our Lutheran friends, following Luther in the Reformation, likewise believe in Christ's physical presence during the communion service. Unlike Rome, they, they still they believe that the bread and the wine are still bread and wine. Uh, but Luther and his followers do teach that, that the physical body and blood of Jesus are present during this meal in some mysterious way. The physical body and blood, the physical body, the physical blood of Jesus is present in this meal. And they argue, these two groups argue, that Christ's physical presence in the supper is a necessary position because of what Jesus says in the words of the institution. He says, this is my body, this is my blood. Now, part of the problem with this relates to what we talked about a couple of weeks ago regarding the, the two natures of Christ. Remember we talked about how, how Christ is one person with two natures. He has a divine nature and a human nature, two natures united in singular personhood, but these two natures should not be confused. They are not blended together. They remain distinct from one another. And what Calvin and other reformers brought up in objection to Rome's and, and Luther's positions is that their, possession, their positions confuse and blend the two natures of Christ. Their positions uh, attribute something of Christ's divinity to his humanity, namely omnipresence. Their positions would assume that Christ's human nature could be present in more than one place at a time. The issue is that a human nature, if it's truly human, is confined to being in one place at a time. As we know, Christ is right now present, physically present in heaven, seated at the right hand of God the Father. Thus, his, his body and blood can't be distributed to these many places throughout the world simultaneously. It would, compromi it would compromise the reality of his human nature, and thus we would lose the, the true humanity of Christ, something so precious to us in the doctrine of the incarnation. And what's more is that the words of the institution don't necessitate an overly literal reading here. It's true that Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood. That's what the text says. It says it in the Greek, I promise. Those are the words. But as the, the, the teenage queen of England during the time of the Reformation once said to a, a Catholic priest who was uh, arguing this point to him, her, her name was Lady Jane Grey. She was a brilliant, brilliant young teenage theologian. And this, this Catholic priest was trying to drive this point home to her, saying that Jesus said, this is my body. This is my body, so it must be his body. You need to take these words literally. And she said in response, yes, but Jesus also said in John 10, I am the door. In other words, it was, it was not uncommon for Christ or even other biblical writers to speak of a sign of Christ as if that sign were Christ himself. You find this in, in 1 Corinthians 10, 4. The apostle Paul is speaking of the, the rock that Moses struck in the wilderness and from which the Israelites drank water. And that, of that rock, he says, the rock was Christ. Does that literally mean that in that moment that, that Moses struck the rock, it was actually physically Christ? By no means. He was saying that the rock was a type of Christ, a sign of what was to come when Christ would be struck on the cross and give his people living water through his being stricken. The rock was a sign not literally Christ himself. So it is in the Lord's Supper, at the Last Supper here. And even here in the Passover meal, there's also an example of this in the reality of the Passover liturgy. Uh, part of the tradition of the Passover meal included eating this, this bitter-tasting bread. And during the Passover liturgy, 
the host of the meal would say of this bread, this is the bread of affliction, the very same bread of distress that our ancestors ate while slaves in Egypt. Now, does that mean that, that in the moment those, the host said those words, that that bread literally turned into the bread that the Israelites alive during the Exodus ate? Certainly not. They were saying that this bread they were eating was a sign, a memorial to aid in the remembrance of God's people whenever they celebrated the Passover meal. Now, in relation to that, does this mean then that the, these sacred signs of bread and wine in the Lord's Supper are mere signs? Are, are, are they merely a memorial of Christ's death? I know many Christians believe that today. Many of you grew up in traditions that teach that. I think often as something of an overreaction to the errors of of Rome and, and Luther, but, but scripturally speaking, there's a close connection between these signs and the things signified. In other words, when, when scripture speaks of the bread and the wine, so it, the scripture speaks of the bread and the wine in some way communicating the body and blood of Jesus to us. It's for good reason that Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood, because as the Apostle Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? That word translated as participation, it's the Greek word koinonia. It means, it means communion. It means to participate in or share in. Now this, this cup, he says, is a communion with the blood of Christ. This bread is a communion with the body of Christ. Christ is really and truly present to us in a unique way in the Lord's Supper. We have communion with the body and the blood of Christ in a special way during the Lord's Supper. How does that work? Christ's body and blood are, are in heaven and, and, and we're here. How do we commune with him through the Lord's Supper? And there's a, a degree of mystery here, but... It's, it's, we, we commune with him in the same way that we experience our union with Christ in the first place, through the Holy Spirit. We are united with Christ in the moment that we trust in him through the Holy Spirit. In the same way, the Holy Spirit is the one who unites us to Christ during the Lord's Supper in, in a special way, giving us communion with his body and blood in a special way. The Holy Spirit meets with us in communion, and he gives us communion with the Lord Jesus so that we're nourished and strengthened during this meal. Now, this, this is the view espoused by, by John Calvin and others like Thomas Cranmer from the Reformation. It's often called the spiritual presence view, but it's a view, I think, that best honors the teaching of Scripture and communicates the spiritual realities given to us in the Lord's Supper. I think it's probably summed up best in the second London Baptist Confession written in the mid-1600s, that confession says this. It says, Worthy recipients who outwardly partake of the visible elements, <coughs> excuse me, worthy recipients who outwardly partake of the visible elements in this ordinance also by faith inwardly receive and feed on Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death. They do so really and truly, yet not physically and bodily, but spiritually. The body and blood of Christ are not present bodily or physically in the ordinance, but 
spiritually to the faith of believers, just as the elements themselves are present to their outward senses. What that's saying is that, friends, Christ is really and truly present to us in a special way when we come to the Lord's Supper in faith. When we come to the table in faith, we receive and we feast upon Christ himself, not physically, not bodily, but spiritually. And in so doing, we're strengthened and assured and nourished in our faith. For this reason, we don't just look back during the Lord's Supper. We enjoy a real and present communion. There is a present reality in the Lord's Supper that we ought not ignore, but enjoy and celebrate. But then there is furthermore a future element to the reality of the Lord's Supper. The Last Supper also reveals to us that Jesus has given us a hopeful meal. Jesus has given us a hopeful meal. Our passage concludes in verse 25 with Jesus saying, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Here Jesus is speaking of of the kingdom of God uh, being consummated at the end of the age. When he returns uh, and the the fullness of God's kingdom is, is manifest in the earth, when God's glory covers the earth as the waters clothe the sea, when when God's enemies are vanquished and God's beloved people are forever saved with new bodies and a new heaven and a new earth. Until that day comes, Jesus says, I won't drink of the fruit of the vine, but on that day, he says, he will drink, he will celebrate, he will feast again. And this is a reference to to what Revelation 19.9 calls the marriage supper of the Lamb. In the day of Christ's return, we we're going to feast in joy and celebration of what our God has done for us. It will be the, the wedding reception of all wedding receptions. Christ will have come to marry his bride, and so we're going to party like no one has ever partied before. It will be a great feast of joy and celebration and glory in which we eat and drink with our Savior in his physical presence and with all he calls his own. And just as the Son of Man came came eating and drinking the first time. He will come again eating and drinking, and we will eat and drink with him on that day. And thus, every time we, we celebrate and observe the Lord's Supper then, we're not just looking back to what Christ has done for us, and we're not just experiencing a present communion, we're also looking forward to this great feast to come. As Tim Keller uh, once put it, the Lord's Supper is something of an hors d'oeuvre of the age and feast to come. Every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're getting a foretaste of the joy and communion we'll possess in that day. Every time we observe the Lord's Supper, we're anticipating when we feast with Christ face to face. Placing our hope, we're saying that we're placing our hope in this promise that He will return to rescue us from the very presence and power of sin. That he's going to take away all of our suffering and sorrows. He's going to wipe away all the tears from our eyes forevermore. we're, We're saying that our hope is in this day in which he will end all sin and sorrow and suffering and replace it with the matchless joy of his full and effulgent presence. And so when we celebrate the Lord's Supper today, don't just look back and remember that Christ was crucified for us. Don't just celebrate and enjoy his presence with us in these moments, but also look forward to the day. Of his, of his return and hope and anticipation and rejoice and long for those promises to be made manifest in this meal. Perhaps, perhaps friends, there's, there's one of these realities that you might need to focus on in particular this morning as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's, it's not often that we get to put into immediate practice what we talk about in a sermon, but in a few moments, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And maybe this past week, 
Maybe, maybe even this morning you've come in here just feeling something of a deep conviction over, the, over your sin and feeling the weight of your guilt in and of yourself. Perhaps in the, in the next few moments you, could, you should really focus on the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ in your place and joyfully remember, friend, that your guilt has been taken away and your sin atoned for in Him. For others, perhaps this is a, 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 a difficult season for you and the Christian life just just seems like something of a slog for you right now. And you, don't just, you just don't know how you're going to persevere to the end. Perhaps this would be a good time for you to just sit and be refreshed by the reality that Christ is present with you. You're not alone. You've not been abandoned. He's a very present Savior who will remain with you until the end. Maybe you just need to let that truth wash over you and refresh you in the next several moments. Perhaps others. Maybe you're someone who's just been suffering very much in this last week, the last month, the last years. And what seems particularly relevant to you in light of this meal is the reality that it points us to a day in which those realities will be forever removed from you. So maybe you need, what you need in the next several moments to let this meal increase hope in you and anticipation in you as you look forward to the return of Christ and the full arrival of God's kingdom at the end of the age. What we're going to do now is simply just pray. I'm, I'm going to lead us in a time of, of observing the Lord's Supper, and I'd invite you to, to put into practice what we just talked about. I'd invite you to, to look back now, to presently enjoy, and to look forward as we celebrate this sacred meal that Jesus has given us. Let these realities refresh and encourage you and strengthen you for the Christian life. Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us the sacraments, visible signs and words that, that seal your promises to us, visible signs that testify to and, and proclaim the reality of Christ's death for us. Thank you for, for strengthening and nourishing our faith through them and giving us communion with your dear Son in the midst of them. We pray that, that as we come to the Lord's Supper now, Set, a set aside this bread and this wine as sacred emblems given from your hand to us. That this meal would be to us a meal of remembrance as we look back, recall what Christ has done for us in the cross of Calvary. May it be a meal of communion with us by the grace of the Holy Spirit. May we have a participation in the body and blood of Christ as we observe this meal. And maybe May it be a, a meal of hope for your people now. Increase in us the anticipation of Christ's soon return. May we look forward in that day with hope and faith. Grant us now to come to the table with bold faith, with utter joy, knowing what it is and knowing the one to whom it testifies. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.